the podcast to saturate your faith with the things of God so that you might saturate your world with the good news of Jesus Christ. My name is Travis Michael Fleming, and I'm your host. Today in our show, we're going to talk about unexpected blessings. Those times or those blessings that come into our life when we least expect them. In fact, we find that we go through situations that we would have never otherwise gone through voluntarily. But when we go through them, we're complaining, we're frustrated. And yet when we get through that trial, that tribulation or that situation, no matter what it is, we find that God had done something in us to prepare us to do something else. You know, a great example of this is found in the scriptures with in the book of Genesis with the story of Joseph. We all know that story. He didn't want to be betrayed by his brothers, sold into slavery, then later imprisoned for a crime he didn't commit. That was not his best life now. But God was with him and he was able to go from the prison to the palace for one reason, and that was to save lives. You know, God often does that. He allows us to go through situations we didn't plan on, but God takes them and transforms them into really unexpected blessings. What have you gone through in your life that God has used to be a blessing? What is it? What happened to you that was so painful that you thought it was unbearable and yet God used it to be a blessing to others' lives? Today, we're going to look at what happened when the first real outbreak of persecution hit the early church. And while we have a tendency to pull away from the idea of persecution in our lives, we can see that what God did with it became an unexpected blessing to many. And today's episode is brought to you in part by Derek Eastman Insurance Agency. If you're looking for life, home, or auto insurance, then Derek Eastman is your guy. Get a free quote from Derek Eastman in Sugar Grove, Illinois at 630-466-1144. Now let's get into our passage. We're in Acts chapter 8, and we're going to be reading from Acts 4-8, and then we're going to skip through a section and go from 26th down to the remaining part of the passage in verse 40. So I want to start off and read this for us. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. Now skipping down to verse 26. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot. And he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you are reading? And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter and like a lamb before its shearer is silent. So he opens not his mouth. 
In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop. And they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more, and went on his way, rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus, and as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. So today, we're going to examine another episode in the life of the early church, and it's and it concerns Philip. If you were here or listened a few weeks ago, we were introduced to Philip's Philip in Acts chapter 6. He was a Hellenistic Jew who believed Jesus was Messiah and began to be a follower of what was commonly known then as the way. He is designated with the task of taking care of the Hellenistic Jewish widows in the daily distribution of food. He was also a friend of Stephen, the first martyr. Another Hellenistic Jewish follower of Jesus who became the first martyr in church history. Stephen's death triggered an anti-Christian purge, with men and women being dragged out of their homes, taken from their families, and thrown into prison. Believers began to flee Jerusalem in droves, scattering throughout Judea and Samaria. And, for whatever reason, the apostles ended up staying in Jerusalem to carry on the ministry there. Now, many of us who are listening can't imagine paying such a price for our faith, having to flee our homeland, our houses, our apartments, our families, our friends, the foods we know, the clothes we wear, leaving behind the family albums, the traditions, the la- even our own language, the places we shop, the radio stations we listen to, to go someplace else. But they did. The question is, what did they do When they got there, many of us would lament, remember the good old days. And there certainly is a place for lamentation in the Christian walk. But when we are so focused on what we had, we can't see the opportunities God places before us. When we are so locked in in on what we used to have, we fail to take hold of the things we have right in front of us. So let's see what they did. Look at verse 4 for a moment. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. They were scattered about preaching the word of God. They weren't victims. They didn't go about remembering the way things were. They seized the opportunity to preach the word. And as Christians today, we can go about lamenting about our place in the culture or talking about how evil the world is and how it once allowed Christians to have a political place. But we are missing what we do have. You see, God takes difficult situations and often turns them into unexpected blessings. And that requires us to look for the opportunities before us. That's the first thing that I want us to understand. They went about preaching. We need to stop lamenting and start evangelizing, sharing Jesus. And I had a conversation last night with a group of men. Why don't we evangelize anymore? Why? 
Is it because we've seen the hypocrisy that's gone on in many leadership circles? Is it because we have an idol of being liked? Is it because we don't want to be seen as some of those people, like those fundamentalists that are throwing up signs in different parts of parades or things like that? We don't want to be seen like them. Maybe we're afraid we don't know how to answer people. Maybe we are afraid of saying the wrong thing. Or maybe we just have a very hard time talking to people about something that we rarely talk about anyway. I think we need to put our phones away and start having real conversations with real people. Not the stereotypes that we see portrayed in the media. Not the straw men that are set up in front of us that we can easily argue into submission. No. We need to look for opportunities before us, and doing it, it won't be easy. We will need to step out of our comfort zones. Notice what Philip does in verse 5. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. He went down to the city of Samaria. Jerusalem was higher in elevation than Samaria, so to go to Samaria, one had to go down off the mountain. However, there is a double connotation involved here. Samaria was the area all Jews avoided at all costs. It was that neighborhood filled with those kinds of people. It was not a safe place to Jews who were considered who considered the Samaritans half-breed heretics that I mean that's how they saw them as half-breed heretics. The animosity of the Jews and the Samaritans went back a thousand years. One need only look at the animosity going on in Jerusalem right now to get an idea, although it is somewhat different people groups. You see, their story began with the division of the Jewish kingdom into north and south in about 930 BC. There had been a dispute about taxes. Isn't it always about the money that led 10 of the tribes of Israel separating into their own northern kingdom that became known as the kingdom of Israel, also known as the kingdom of Samaria? And the two tribes that stayed became known as the Southern Kingdom or the King of Judah, Kingdom of Judah. The two coexisted side by side for almost 200 years until the Assyrians conquered the Northern Kingdom in 722 BC. The Assyrians deported thousands of people from Israel and repopulated the land with other people groups that they had conquered. And in 586 BC, the Babylonians conquered the Southern Kingdom, the Kingdom of Judah. The Babylonians did something similar to the Assyrians and sent the Jews into exile into Babylon. And during that time, however, Cyrus the Great, king of the Medes and the Persians, conquered Babylon. Cyrus respected the cultures and religions he conquered greatly, and he is the one who sent Ezra with a group of people to rebuild the Jewish temple in Jerusalem. Many Samaritans tried to dissuade Ezra from rebuilding the temple, but soon after its completion, the Samaritans built their own temple at Mount Gerizim, claiming that location was the actual place where the previous Jewish temple had been. This actually hardened political and religious relations between them, which was further complicated by the Samaritan repudiation of all of the Old Testament except the first five books of Moses, also known as the Pentateuch. So, we have two groups that really don't like each other, and with Jews seeing Samaritans as half-breeds and heretics. Now, let's imagine for a moment Philip coming into this situation. We don't know where he was from, but we do know that he was a Hellenistic Jew. But he decided that he would cross racial 
and religious boundaries to share the good news of Jesus Christ. I mean, talk about stepping out of your comfort zone. I don't know if you've ever been to a situation where you have been the minority in a group of people, but it's not always a pleasant feeling. And I feel for my brothers and sisters who are that minority culture in a majority culture, wherever that is. I've traveled a little bit around the world, and I have seen how that works out and experienced it myself. And it is not an easy thing to do. You don't know what to say. You don't know what to do. You don't understand the practice, the rhythms, the intonations, the tone, the conversation, the subjects that are being talked about. I mean, it is not an easy thing to do, to be around. I mean, we want to be around people like us who look, sound, dress, and believe like we do. It may be because of safety or that's how it was modeled for us, or it may be out of a fear of someone for being different. Well, perhaps it is because of stereotypes we have been given. It could be a whole host of things, but God calls us to reach out and speak to all people. Regardless of the color of their skin or the creed they espouse, their occupation or sin. Notice verse 4 again. They went about preaching the word. Now, the Greek word for preaching, what it's talking about there, is meaning to proclaim glad tidings, and it specifically means to instruct people concerning the things that pertain to Christian salvation. What were they doing? They were going about telling others about Jesus. That's simply put. That's what they're doing in layman's terms. We can see that they were, and we are then, to share our faith. That's what it's talking about. We are to tell others about who Jesus is, and we are to share what God has done in our lives. You see, that's one of the things that persecution does. It helps scatter people so that the word of God would be shared. Think about the current refugee situation going on in our world right now. It has been said that this is the greatest humanitarian crisis of our time. And going back just about six years ago, in 2015, really at the height of it, there were 65 million people forcefully displaced, and roughly half of them are under the age of 18. Think about that. Let that settle in for just a moment. We are seeing a movement that has never been seen in world history. And do you know what? I believe that God is working in that. I believe that God is bringing the nations into contact with the gospel and will use the nations to revive those nations who have known him and grown cold. He will use those from different lands to stoke the fires of the church in America and around the world, and he will send those nations back into their countries of origin to share the name of Christ. Now, don't misunderstand me. Not only has God brought the nations here so that they might be reached, but he's bringing many of those nations here to reach our nation. And you, want, you might wonder what I'm meaning there, but a lot of the refugees that are coming into our country, and I'm talking about coming into the United States of America right now, and I know that there are listeners in other lands, but just let me allow me for a moment to talk about the United States. We have so many different cultures coming in that are already Christian, and we can see how they, in many ways, are reviving the church in America. I lived in New England for a period of time, and I saw many of the white churches were dying. And yet, the church was still growing because the churches that were growing were actually filled with immigrants. And you're seeing them reviving and changing, many ways changing, what the faith looks like and how it is manifested in our culture. 
So God brings the nations for us to reach them, but he also brings the nations to reach us. Let's get back to our text, though. Notice what happens in verse 5 and following. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds, with one accord, paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they, when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. They heard and listened to him because of the signs that he did. I mean, Luke goes on to explain what those signs were in verse 7. For unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who had them. And many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. Here we have people who have been demonized, afflicted by unclean spirits, As Philip is casting them out of people, I mean, we do not often talk about demonization in the West because we have seen an overemphasis on the demonic while denying personal responsibility or some of the mental, physiological, or psychological makeups of a person. But as people, we are fairly complex beings, and at the root of them is our fallen nature. And it may be simply an effect of our fallen nature, or it could be demonic in origin. And sometimes those two work hand in hand. Here, he was freeing them from being demonized, and he was healing those who were paralyzed or lame. Once again, as I mentioned before, he had the gift to be able to do this. And what was the point of it? To confirm the message that he was delivering to them. It showed them that there was something different about this message, and it brought unbelievable joy. Now, what does that mean for us? It means that we must ask God to show himself to others, to confirm his message in their lives. People know that God is real when we pray for them and God answers a prayer or when God shows up in a vision or some other thing. And don't try to manufacture as a result. God will operate on his own timetable. Notice the response in verse 8. So there was much joy in that city. It wasn't hype. It was real hope. When God works joy, when God works, joy is often the byproduct, and we need to make sure that we savor God's work. Whenever we see God's handiwork in a life, a church, community, country, we need to savor it, which is to say that we are to give glory to God and recognize it is a work of God and then thank him for pouring out his spirit on us. We are a fickle people and turn to criticism and even jealousy when we see how God has worked in someone's life. And rather than rejoice with them, we find ways to nullify their experience. Please hear me. I'm not talking about something that is unbiblical or manufactured, but about something genuine, real, spirit-wrought. We need to savor what God is doing in others' lives and trust that he is working in ours as well, just perhaps not in the same way. I want to pick up the story in verse 26. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot. And he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, Go over and join this chariot. We could be talking here about what it means to hear the Spirit talk to us, but instead, I want to focus on one part of what Philip did here that I believe is relevant to us. 
And it's found in verse 26. An angel of the Lord said to him. Now, I'm not sure how he knew it was an angel of the Lord. If the angel appeared to him or spoke to him or he just heard him. And when coupled with verse 29, we see that the spirit of God told him to go over to join the chariot. When the two are paired together, we see God speaking to him. Let me ask you this. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, when is the last time God spoke to you? Yes, he speaks through his word. That is the the main way that he speaks. And we know that he will never contradict his word. But has God ever spoken to you? And you're sure that it's God. And again, it will not contradict God's word at all. But allow me to ask you this. What did he tell you to do? We have become deaf to listening to the Spirit of God. But if we are to take advantage of these unexpected blessings, then it requires that we listen to the Spirit's leading. When is it that you have listened to God's prompting of you? When have you felt him whispering in your ear? Why haven't you been listening? Allow me to give a bit of a guide here. There are some who want to skip over the word to hear the voice of God. They don't believe that they are called to do anything until God speaks to their heart. It reminds me of the conversation or what Francis Chan wrote when he said, I went to help poor people. I didn't feel a call. I just did it. Hmm. That's good. But we have those who, who say they're waiting for this call. And we have to remember that God speaks first and foremost through his word. And oftentimes God has already spoken about the things that we have come to him for. Just as in Chan's case, God says, help the poor. We don't need to go back and get an inner prompting for that. Okay. Now that we have that out of the way, we can see that God does speak in various ways. And we must listen to the spirit when he prompts us. And, we, and when he does, we need to be ready to receive what he has for us. I have seen all too often those who have had God speak to them, and it is almost always positive in regards to what they already want. But is that true? I don't think so. Sometimes he may speak to you in that regard, and other times he may not. He may speak to you about things he wants you to do that you don't want to do. For example, he had Philip go to Samaria, and then he had Jonah go to Nineveh. What does he want? Where does he want you to go to? Or who does he want you to go to? And having Philip go to Samaria and then to Gaza, it's a desert place. And it also means that it's a hard place. There's not a lot of going on, nor are there too many people, nor is it a desirable place to be. What does that mean for us? It means that we can see that he may take us to hard places. That's what he's talking about. That's what he's trying to show us. Think about that for a moment. God takes us to hard places, to places where the gospel needs to go, to those who are different, who may hate us, who, are, who may hate our way of life, hate who Jesus is. It may be dry. It might not be where we want to be. It may seem small, out of the way and backwards, but God has never been about flash, flashy crowds and light shows. 
He has been about showing up in small people and places to do big things. He may be taking us to a place where we didn't want to go, to interact with people of a different culture, ethnic group, tribe, or language. This is where the gospel must become real. The gospel is not a Sunday morning worship service. It is God transforming people, and then he sends those transformed people to share so that they will encounter God and also become transformed people. We have regulated God to a worship service in so many different circles and in so many different ways. And he is so much bigger than that. His kingdom is to be proclaimed in the most difficult and dark places. Notice also that he is sent to an Ethiopian eunuch. I find it fascinating that between 27 and 39, verses 27 and 39, the word eunuch is mentioned five times. Now, what is a eunuch? For those that don't know, a eunuch is a man who has been castrated. Ouch. Usually because of the person that he is serving. You see, a man would be castrated if he was meant to guard a group of women or serve in the presence of women. It was thought that a man would be less aggressive sexually if he had his testicles removed. Why does the text make such a great effort to mention that he was a eunuch? In Judaism, of which this man was a practitioner and most likely called a God-fearer, one who followed the God of Israel but who did not undergo circumcision, or would not be allowed to fully convert because of the fact he was castrated. In Deuteronomy 23.1, it clearly states that a man who has any damage to his genitals was cut off from God's people. But here we have this man who becomes a believer in Jesus, accepted as a full member into God's community. What can we learn from this? I believe that he was a hurting man, scarred physically, but also scarred emotionally. And I think that Luke included him in this account to show that God desires to reach hurting people. There are people who are scared by what has been done to them. They may have been abused, molested, harassed, or raped. And I say both men and women. You may have felt that you were not good enough to get to God. Perhaps you felt isolated, alone, separated from God. But the Ethiopian eunuch is a picture of how God delights in including people, of God seeking out to save those who have been scarred. It's also very interesting that he is an Ethiopian, which was at that time from the region of Nubia, which is in the southern part of Egypt and the northern part of Sudan. Remember, the modern geographical lines that we have today are just exactly that. They are not like the ancient lines of different kingdoms and regions where certain rules or kingdoms were. So it's in the southern part of Egypt and the northern part of Sudan. And the the word literally means burnt skin, which is the scripture's way of saying that he was black, as opposed to someone with lighter skin, like from Egypt or Libya. He was a court official of Candace, the queen of the Ethiopians, and he was in charge of her treasure which is why he might have been made a eunuch, because he was her servant, had access to her, and had access to her treasure. And some felt that being castrated also caused less aggression, which meant less likely to steal money. Why does the scripture take 
such great care to mention this. It's not just a passing by detail. There's a reason why God has included that for us. And I believe that there are a few reasons at work. One that we have already said, that God was bringing and making things, uh, making those who were broken to be part of his people. But secondly, I think that God is showing us one of the first African converts. Thirdly, I think that the scripture has shown that those who were poor and had no status were coming to Jesus. And here we have someone very esteemed and honorable coming to Jesus, showing us that all kinds of people were coming to faith, which would include ethnicity as well. Now, there are some who want to keep certain people, groups, and ethnicities out of the kingdom of God. I mean, we give maybe a cursory nod to it, but when it comes to the day-to-day, we're not all on board. And we can see here, though, that God is forcing us to confront our hang-ups about other groups. God is reaching out to people of all tribes and tongues and backgrounds, people you may have hated historically he wants to save. What is the group that you despise the most? God wants to reach them. Is there a group, perhaps a different race, creed, tribe, or even a subculture in your own culture? God wants us to confront them in order that they may come to the saving knowledge of him. And we have to trust that God is preparing hearts for what he has. He was working in the Ethiopian's heart already. He was reading the prophet Isaiah for crying out loud. There are hearts all around us whom God is preparing. Outwardly, they might be the most resistant, but they are so close and ready to receive what God has for them. Ask God to show you who they are. Don't look out don't look out don't look at them outwardly. Ask God to see them through his eyes. What does Philip do? He asked the Ethiopian if he understood what he was reading, but he didn't. He then proceeded to lead him to the Lord. You know, that's what God is calling us to do. Lead people to him. Now, how do we do that? How do we lead people to the Lord? Isn't that the pastor or the deacon or the elder's job? Isn't that for missionaries? Isn't that for the paid clergyman? No, it is all of our jobs. Philip wasn't a pastor. He was just a man sold out for God. And we need to know how to lead people to the Lord. First of all, I mean, for us to do that, that means taking time out to do it. Look at verse 30. Do you understand what you are reading? And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. We can't reach anyone in our culture unless we make room for it. We have to hear them. I think we, we have such a hard time leading anyone to the Lord because we don't take time to be with people. I think we're so obsessed with being heard that we can't hear others. We are too busy and we need to simplify to make room for relationships in order to minister to others. Now, notice what else happens. He was reading from Isaiah 53, verse 7 through 8, about the Messiah who was to come. Allow me to read it. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. Then we read in verse 34, And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with the scripture, with this scripture, he told them the good news about Jesus. Philip begins to explain how these were fulfilled in Jesus. He begins by teaching the scriptures. 
You see, Jesus was the perfect lamb of God who came to take away our sins. He was led to the slaughter as the Passover lamb who was meant to take away our sins. He took away our sins. We may not be theologians, but God is not calling us to be that. He is calling us to be faithful servants where we are to our worlds who can communicate the love and truth of what we do know. He shared about who Jesus is. You know, we don't know everything he told him. We don't know if he prayed a prayer to receive Jesus or asked Jesus into his heart. We have no idea if he said something like that. We simply know that he believed. And perhaps it was a bit like C.S. Lewis's conversion. He was in a sidecar of a motorcycle driving to the Mizzou to the zoo. And he said it simply, when we set out, I did not believe Jesus is the son of God. And when we reached the zoo, I did. I mean, what is your moment when you started to follow Jesus? The revivalist Charles Finney was converted in the woods. John Newton, author of the song Amazing Grace, repented while being tied to a ship's wheel in a storm. And Chuck Colson, the politician who became a prisoner and then preacher, asked God into his life while crying in a car on a roadside. He led him to Jesus, and he told him somewhere along the line what he needed to do next. That's what we need to do, is be telling them their next steps, and we need to know those ourselves. He told them about baptism. Baptism was was the way you declared your faith in Jesus. By showing your newfound faith, we read in verse 36, and they were going along the road, they came, excuse me, and as they were going along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, see, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the the chariot to stop. And they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized them. He was ready to be baptized. He believed, received, and what was ready to decree it. Baptism does not save. It is an outward symbol of an inward change, a transformation, a declaration that one believes and wishes to follow Jesus with their lives. We need to help people by giving them direction. People do not automatically know this stuff. I mean, I want to pause here for a second and ask you a question. Have you believed? I don't want to just presume that you're listening to this podcast and believe. And have you received Jesus as Lord of your life? Usually those two go hand in hand. Have you stepped into the waters of baptism to declare that to other people, which shows the supreme act of identification that you are with him? What are you waiting for? He did it as soon as he saw water. Why are we being disobedient? I've had so many people that want to get baptized because they believe it saves them in some way, and then they want to be rebaptized after they've been sa- after they've sinned. No, that's not how it works. It is an act of identification and showing that we are with Jesus and and that we are going to follow him. It is not a finish line, as I've seen in some churches where a person gets baptized and never shows up again to services. No, it is not a finish line. It is a starting line to show that we're in the race. Step into the waters and declare your faith. And after Philip baptizes him, something crazy happens in verse 39. And when they came out of the water, the spirit of the Lord carried Philip away and the eunuch saw him no more and went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus. And as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. Some believe he was led away. I don't think so. The text doesn't indicate that at all. God took him and transported him to Azotus, where he continued preaching to all the towns around. What can we learn from this? 
Philip didn't allow, God didn't allow Philip there to stay to hold his hand. He had another mission for him. And he may do the same for you. You know, we have to make sure that we are trusting God to guide us and not other people. Yes, we can seek counsel and we can seek too much counsel and never act. I mean, yes, we, with, with many, many counselors, we wage war, but I know some people that get so many counselors and they get so many opinions and they get so confused and then they are paralyzed because there are too many choices. Get a few people to yes, counsel you, but never let that take you away from speaking to God and listening to him yourself. We have to trust God to guide us, both them and us. We have to trust God to guide us for what he has for us and for him to continue what he started in them. Their salvation is not dependent upon us. Are you not sure where God wants you to be? Let me ask you this. When will Jesus be enough for you? If I were to give you a water bottle for the week, this is it. I want you to stop fighting God and do what he wants you to do, and then you're going to find peace. It doesn't mean that you're not going to have opposition. You're going to have opposition, and you have to learn how to live in that peace and cultivate it in your life. But I find that as soon as I get through one trial, there is another one waiting to greet me. We have to make sure that we stop fighting and simply do what he wants you to do. And that's your water bottle for the week. Do what God wants you to do. What is it? What step of faith is he asking you to take? Do it this week. Do not wait. And when you do, you're going to find peace. You're going to find peace. Well, that's it for today's episode. I want to let you know that today's episode has been sponsored in part by Kathy Brothers of Keller Williams Innovate. If you are in need of a realtor, she's it. Google her and give her a call or text today. And if this episode has helped you so that you can water your world, then please, please, please honor us by sharing it with other people. We believe that God has called us to this ministry and we want to help as many people as possible. And if you are able, then please refer this to other people. Give us a like online, write us a review, and share this episode with others. I also want to encourage you to continue listening in as we continue to delve into this subject and look at these various episodes and what happened in the early church and how people survived. And not only survived, but thrived. Well, that's it for today's episode. I want to thank our team, Kevin, Eliana, Rebecca, Melissa, and Donovan Martin. That's it for this week, everybody. Water your faith, water your world. This is Travis Michael Fleming signing off from Apollo's Water. Stay watered, everybody. Stay watered, everybody.